And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while, for there were many coming and going. They had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out to all cities, and out went them and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were sheep, not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Lord, as we turn to your word now, would you come and speak to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. That was a little treat for you, a little King James. Caught me off guard, caught you off guard, but there we are, a little hitherto, and out went. Almost felt a little text in there, out went. But here we are. We are at a, a famous passage, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, as we look at it, do keep your, uh, your, your orders of service open to page 6. And if you have Bibles, um, do turn to Mark chapter 6. I just will help you follow along um, as we look through what we have here. We're going to be talking about two, uh, two things that are words that are used all the time, but do we really know what they mean? And I ask that of myself. Um, and so maybe, just maybe, you do. If not, hooray. But if you do, perhaps this will be a help. And those words are blessing and compassion. They're used today like words that roll off the tongue without, um, without much at all. But what, what, what do they really mean? And we see here Jesus using these two, um, these two words, blessing and compassion, quite powerfully. In Mark chapter 6, verse 30, it begins uh, quite strikingly. I don't, it's a distinctive of Mark. Mark is the action hero, writer of the, uh, the Gospels. He is uh, very quick in his account, but he also gives us incredible detail, which we'll see in a moment. And he begins from the very beginning in Mark's account. He doesn't refer to the disciples as disciples. He refers to them as apostles, which is striking, isn't it? And, I, and before he left on vacation, I turned to uh, Chris and I said, Chris, I'm not going to ask you what a disciple is, what, a, what an apostle is, because I know. But had you seen this before? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can't surprise Chris Myers, which is, which is good. Um, but apostle, what does it mean today? What is an apostle? Well, there, there are two working definitions that are helpful to us uh, this evening. Apostle, from the original Greek, simply means sent one. An apostle is someone who's sent. And that's why in the church, we often say that, you know, people don't go anywhere. They don't leave. They're sent. Because to be in partnership with Jesus is to recognize that he's with you wherever you go. And so wherever you go, you're not simply going, you're being sent. But also, in the first century, Rome had a very specific agenda, which was to create uh, an ideal of a city that you would unite an empire, where people who might never have the chance to go to Rome might identify with it. And so they had a very specific job with a title, and that job was to go to the outposts of Rome and to begin to recreate Roman culture in a faraway land. 
So the fashion, the language, the style, the haircut, you know, all of that, all of those practices found in the city of Rome were happen, would happen throughout the empire. And the name and the title of that person in charge of recreating the culture of a city was called an apostle. And so we, here we have Jesus and the first, uh, the, the writers of the gospel taking a term that Rome used very actively and usurping it for the purposes of the kingdom. So we, here we have people who are sent out, apostles, under the rule and reign of King Jesus, being sent out to recreate the culture of the kingdom of heaven wherever they go. Verse 30, and so the apostles returned, the sent ones have come back, and they told him what they'd done and taught in verse 31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So he gets the good report from them. He says, come on, let's, let's go away. Let's just have a moment. Probably teaching, trying to teach them the model of, of moving from success and activity, which Jesus often had when he was successful and great things happened. He would withdraw to spend time with his father alone. See, Jesus always worked from a place of rest. Unlike me and maybe one or two of you, where I'm always working so that I might find a moment to rest. Jesus did the opposite. From that place of rest, he did the work of his Father. And so it's funny because, and this is Mark being a little bit comical, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Or in the King James, which I love, it says, and they went privately in verse 22. But verse 33, it wasn't very private at all because the paparazzi were there. And many saw them going and recognized them. So they're going by boat to a desolate place, and the crowd sees them going and has an idea where they're going to go because you can see the trajectory. And they leg it. The, the momentum here of Mark is that they run. They run to catch up with Jesus so that when they get to shore, what happens at verse 33? Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. I mean, that's, that, there's a lot of momentum here because they see that Jesus, there's something about Jesus. There's something about his words. There's something about his character. There's something about what he's like. And then verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. What does compassion mean? What does compassion mean? Is it he had pity on them? It's more of the sense of his heart went out to them. He saw the state. What did he see? And here there's a direct link to the prophet Ezekiel. In verse chapter 34, he talks about Israel being uh, a sheep without a shepherd. And so Mark's showing us here that Jesus is fulfilling the promise of God that one day the good shepherd would come. And so he sees them, and he begins to teach them many things. And then verse 35, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. 
So what we see here is because of Jesus' compassion on them, we see that the motivation of, of, of Jesus and of our, what our motivation is to be wasn't a demonstration of power. It's not a demonstration of pity. He's not declaring that there's a poverty here that needs to be addressed. More, his heart is moved, and his heart goes out to them. And knowing that God is good, and knowing that all things were in his hands, he acted in a loving way. And then we have the disciples in verse 35. Practical, very practical people. Evening's coming. It's getting late. And notice that the action that's about to happen of what Jesus begin, what Jesus is about to do is initiated by the disciples or by the apostles, to be more true to what Mark writes. It's their idea. It's as if they come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, great sermon, but they're getting hungry. We once uh, did... <laughs> Uh, worked with a, uh, a ministry down in South Dallas, in Oak Cliff, actually, uh, called The Well, and we would uh, do the worship service and then feed them. And the first time we went with All Saints, we brought fried chicken. And the mistake we made was that the team made, maybe they knew more than I did, but as it was mid-talk, the doors opened and everyone could smell fried chicken. And the crowd was lost. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were already gone. They got up and left. And so it's something, isn't it? When you're sad here, like, have you had supper tonight yet? No, then maybe that hunger is starting to grumble, you know? And these, these things that we feel are powerful. We can get hangry, so I, I won't labor the point. But they see the hunger, they see the time, and they're concerned. But the problem is they don't know how to problem solve yet from a kingdom perspective, which is really important because when you problem solve, you have options. What perspective are you going to try to solve this problem from? Jesus was always coming from a kingdom perspective, as you'd expect. The, the apostles, however, start from a more earthly position. And so as they start to try to problem solve, they look at what's around them. They look at the time, they look at the crowd, and they look at their resources. And all of a sudden, they see that there's a problem. Whereas the kingdom perspective of problem solving starts from the fact that we know that he is all things. That in the kingdom, it, rarely do we have a resource problem. We may think we have a resource problem, but actually, there's a different perspective. Why? Because with Jesus, there's always enough. There's always enough. He is good, and that informs what we do. So in verse 38, we see what, how Jesus reframes the solution. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And we know from, from the other account of this, they find that some wonderful mother has sent their little boy to see Jesus with a lunchbox. And in the lunchbox are five loaves and two fish. And so somewhere in the background, a mother is praised because of the lunch she made. So those of you who are making lunches, God sees you. It's great, isn't it? The detail is so powerful. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. 
And so what Jesus does is he helps them reframe it by saying, what is in your hands? What are we working with? And then he says to them, then he commanded, in verse 39, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And here's another mark of, uh, another signature of Mark's is that he takes the time when normally he's very economical with his words to tell us that the grass was green. Not scorched like some places in Dallas, but just green on the green grass. And then we see how practical Jesus is. So those of you who are accountants and work with spreadsheets all day, Jesus speaks your language. Why? Because he has them sit down in groups by hundreds and fifties. He suddenly finds a way from a project management point of view how to efficiently deliver five loaves and two fish when they're multiplied. It's incredible, isn't it? And then in verse 41, he took what was in their hands, he takes the five loaves and the two fish, he lifts them up, and he blesses them. And then they begin to disperse the food. He breaks the bread, foreshadowing the meal that he was going to institute later, where he takes the bread, he blesses it, breaks it, and he has it distributed. And notice what happens next. He gave to them disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them, and they ate, and they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. So does that mean everyone just had a bite? No, the picture here is that they ate till they could eat no more. Everyone is satisfied, and what they have left over are 12 baskets. Now, this isn't coincidental. They don't start with 12 baskets. They start with five loaves and two fish. And the multiplication means that the leftovers that are collected have left. We have 12 baskets left. Well, what does that mean? Why is that important? Well, any Jewish person growing up knew that the number 12 meant something special. Just like every Canadian, I hope they teach it still in Canada now, but I haven't gone well, knows that the number 99 is significant. It's the number of the great one. Wayne Gretzky, who was the, one of arguably the best athlete who ever lived. 99 is a significant number to us Canadians. But to Jews, 12 was significant for eternal purposes, so that's a bit more important. And so Jesus is making a statement. He's sta- making a statement about what he's like. And the statement of what he's like is that he is sufficient. What he's saying is, I am enough to satisfy all the needs I'm, sa- I'm sufficient to satisfy all the needs of Israel, all of Israel that is broken, that is fractured, that is scattered, that is disillusioned, all of its needs that are because the people are bruised, the people are in pain, the people are hurt. He's saying, I'm sufficient for all of their healing and all of their wholeness in me. It was true then. It's true now. And for some of you tonight, this is what the Lord would have you hear. He's enough. And so compassion, we see, is the the beginning, is the basis of blessing. And when we bless, when, when someone prays a blessing, what they're praying is that the presence of the living God himself, the one who we're singing was high and lifted up, exalted above all other names, that his very presence would come and fill 
our lives. And so he feeds the multitude, showing that he's a sufficient one for the whole of Israel, and showing us today that he is the sufficient one for all of the needs of East Dallas, for the needs of everyone who feels broken, hurt, dislocated, disillusioned, challenged, every single one of them, he is the one who is able to meet every need. Um, an observation, really, that often it isn't until we've hit our wall, often it isn't until we've come to the end of ourselves and discovered our own brokenness, and that when we meet with Jesus, often this is really when things really start to begin in a new way with Jesus. But there's really a, a subversive and terrible message that makes its way around churches in Dallas that I've seen, and maybe it's all around the world, which is subtle, but it's straight from the pit that says that if you are broken, if you don't have it all together, that maybe you're disqualified from ministry or from life in the church. And that goes exactly against the grain of the gospel message, which really is, is that your brokenness filled with the Spirit, or as in our case, your brokenness blessed by Jesus, and as you're being made whole and healed, meeting with him means that you now have something to offer the world. Would you permit me to share a barbecue story? I'll take the chuckles as a, as a yes. A year ago, um, we were all, I think, facing the brokenness of where things were. Pick an issue, whether it was um, the racial injustice, whether it was, you name it, COVID-19 and the isolation, the uncertainty. And um, uh, a friend of mine who uh, I mentioned the well earlier, knows the well very well, um, said, hey, do you think we could do something for the well? Because normally they would meet together, they'd have a kind of fellowship together, eat and, and eat and worship, and they can't do that anymore, so they're delivering meals, and you know, the, the, the quality of food you know, has its peaks and its lows. And if we did ribs for them, I think it would really knock their socks off. I said, yeah, sure, no problem. So we, we got together, and we, we liaised with the head of the ministry of the well, and said, uh, how many people do you expect to feed on a Wednesday lunchtime? We'd love to provide you with ribs. And they said, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so we did the math, and I was, I'm just really shocked at how much math is involved in Texas barbecue. I really am. I've had to learn how to use Excel. I mean, it's just, it, no one told me this. They don't show you that on Instagram. But anyway, there we are. We did the math, and we realized that we needed to provide them with 130 pounds of barbecue, 130 pounds of ribs to feed everyone at lunch. And so we did. We invited my neighbor over, Brandon, to help wrap the, the sheer amount of, of ribs we had to, uh, to provide for them. So we wrapped them all individually. We cooked them and all that kind of stuff. And it's like you count it, you know, and you count it twice because the last thing you want to do is say, hey, we put on a special meal for you and we're going to run out. And um, that morning we heated them up. We got, got it all ready, put it in the, our largest cooler that held exactly 130 pounds of ribs, and we dropped it off at the well. And uh, people were just overjoyed because, you know, you work with barbecue long enough, you start to have the aroma of Christ with you, right? That's, that's the smell of the burnt offering, uh, which was Old Testament worship. 
And so we're delivering it, and everybody's really excited, and, and it's great. We drop it off and go home exhausted because we were working half the night and get a call that afternoon from Alice. And Craig's here. He's helping. You can verify all of these facts with him because it's so extraordinary what happened. Um, she called and said, you know, this, what have you done? I said, well, what do you mean? Don't tell me you ran out. She says, no, no, we didn't run out. I said, okay, well, what's going on, Alice? She said, well, you told us that you would send us 130 pounds of ribs. I said, yeah, and not for one day. She said, yeah, um, but we ha we've had a problem. I said, what's, what's the problem? Our ribs just kept coming out of the cooler. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, we've done the math. I said, I did the math too, Alice. You had enough. I said, I know, no, we're not saying we didn't have enough. We had more than enough. Um, our, our people fed, feasted like kings all day. And we find that we have enough ribs left over for the next two days. I said, well, Alice, how's that possible? She said, I don't know. Did you sneak more? I said, no. We only delivered one cooler with a set amount of ribs. And I said, well, I can't believe what's happening. I said, well, you're the one who saw it, so you should believe it. And she said, yeah, we, we, we pulled out 400 pounds of ribs from that cooler. And I said, well, what do you make of that, Alice? She said, I don't know, but I was reading Mark 6 this morning about the feeding of the 5,000. And, you know, this work is hard. And I was just praying to God for a sign that he's in this with us. And I said, almost in passing, I'd like to see this one day. And I said, well, Alice, looks like he answered your prayer. And uh, she said, but you don't know what this means for our people. They're used to just getting the, because people who go to the well are usually around the poverty line, and they also have um, severe mental health issues. And she said, they have feasted. They will feast for three days like kings. And I said, that sounds, sounds about right. I share that with you because the point is um, the Lord did that because we said we wanted to bless. And I didn't have a lot in my hands. I just had, I knew I had access to good barbecue. And uh, we just asked the Lord to bless it. Just like we asked the Lord to bless food before we eat on a Sunday. And the Lord took it and he used it to communicate a message to people who are often the forgotten, the least, the last, and the lost, and to t show them that they are high priority in his life. Because with Jesus, there's never a resource problem. It's usually just perspective. And the problem of perspective is often we see things and our hearts don't go out. Because we lack the compassion. I mean, I do. I'll say I do. I don't know about you. So he's sufficient, and there's always enough. There's always enough, and all we need to do is to offer what we have in our hands. Now, I don't know what you have in your hands. One thing that has really uh, impressed Rachel and me is the sheer amount of people who are doing all kinds of wonderful entrepreneurial things and that's why we want to, when a quiet day comes, which it may never at this rate, uh, given that we're now moving churches, more about that in a moment, um, is to get everyone together who's interested and just to talk about these small businesses we have, just to pray and offer them to the Lord because we believe, we really believe that this church has a strategic answer to the problems 
that are facing East Dallas, and I would even say the rest of Dallas. I don't know what they are. I don't know what the solution will look like. All I know is that we offer what's in our hands to the Lord, and as he blesses it and offers us to the rest of the city, we will see the Lord do wild things. When the Lord blesses, he blesses what's in our hands, and he takes the things that are in his hands, in our hands, and he fills them with his very presence so that he can then offer it to those who are in need. So there we are. We've covered it all. The feeding of the 5,000, barbecue, Jesus, problem solving. Let's pray. Who are in need even now? We lift to you those near and dear to us who are sick or who are, have relationships that are strained or are facing great challenges. And Lord Jesus, we ask humbly that you would bless them, that you would make your presence known in their lives, and that you would lead them, and that you would guide them. Lord, in your mercy, we lift you East Dallas. We ask that you'd bless the churches in East Dallas. We ask that you'd unite the church in its witness. And we pray especially your blessing on Central Lutheran and on Redeemer Bible Church. And we thank you for the way that we here at St. Bart's have been and will continue to partner with them. Lord, in your mercy. Lord Jesus, we lift you all those who lead whether recognized with a title or not. And we pray that you would give them all that they need to be able to lead with diligence. Lord, we pray for our President Joseph, our Governor Greg, and our Mayor Eric, and ask that you would bless them. Lord, in your mercy. Heavenly Father, we lift to you those we know who don't yet know you. And we ask that some way, somehow, and in your timing, that you would make yourself known to them. Lord, in your mercy. Finally, Heavenly Father, we pray for all those who travel, all those who are moving and resettling, and we pray especially for those who are moving into Texas and into Dallas. And as people gather here, we ask that you would meet their needs. Lord, in your mercy. Accept these prayers, Heavenly Father, for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.